0: Father we thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus and we praise you for the way that he gives us confidence to face the coming judgment and Lord we pray that you would focus our minds and hearts on the reality that you will judge the world through Christ Jesus our Lord in accordance with Paul's Gospel. And Father, we pray that you would help us to live as people who believe that that judgment will happen. Cause us to fear you, cause us to walk in holiness before you by the power of your spirit. And Lord, cause us to warn sinners. Cause us to be those who are willing to speak because we know that your word is true. We pray that you would cause your spirit to be felt among us now as we look into your word, and we pray that you would build us up in the most holy faith, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Romans chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. And as you turn there, I want to share with you a series of, of items that I saw in the paper Yesterday, I was struck as I looked through the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal at so much emphasis on justice. Uh, it, it, it seems that that there is this intense interest in and longing for justice that is testified to by this series of, of news items that I'm, I'm just going to summarize quickly. So one one of these news items was on the this year's Nobel Peace Prize and it was given to a Congolese doctor, two people, a Congolese doctor who has uh, done a lot of work for victims of sexual assault uh, related to wartime activity when, when armies will use uh, sexual assault as part of their assault on different people. So this doctor has, has been active in that. And then to a lady from this people group, the Yazidi people group that I've mentioned several times recently, and, and this woman has been lobbying for Islamic State militants to be put on trial for their crimes against the Yazidis and for action to find more than 3,000 members of that community who remain unaccounted for. So they're, they're giving the Nobel Peace Prize to people who are working for justice in these situations. The next one that I saw relates to a police officer who was found guilty in the death of Laquan McDonald, maybe you saw the footage of this particular shooting. This this Chicago police officer shot this young man 16 times, and he has been convicted of murder for this this crime. Um, The next one, um, the ex-president of South Korea gets 15 years in prison because he enriched himself in office. Uh, He got really, really wealthy using the strings of government. Um, The next one had to do with a movie, or I guess he was a reality TV show star, who was sentenced sentenced in a case involving tax fraud. So there's all this interest, I mean, there there are more than the ones I've named, there's all this interest in justice, and it, it really forces us to ask the question, what is justice and who is going to administer it? And Paul is going to answer that question for us here in Romans 2. Uh, he's going to answer the questions: What is justice, and who is going to administer it? And as we as we consider this this uh, question, what is justice? I can't help but mention another article that I read, having to do with maybe you saw this. Um, these hoax papers were written by these three scholars, and and th- these papers were actually published. And I'm not going to read you some of the some of the the items that they. Um, they presented as, as genuine articles that they were going to you know, write, write academic papers are, on. But I do want to, read you of a, I want to read you a description of a paper that wasn't a hoax. So this was a real paper published in an academic journal. It was about feminist post-humanist politics. And it was a study of what squirrels eat Feminist, post-humanist, so it's you know beyond interest in human beings, politics, and it was a study of what squirrels eat. That's a, re- that's a real concern for these people. It was a real paper. It wasn't a hoax. Those people have a different idea of justice, don't they? If they're interested in the feminist, post-humanist politics of what squirrels eat, they're not interested in justice as the Bible describes it. Okay, so what is justice? Paul's going to speak to that. Who is going to administer it? <clears throat> uh, I think this is of interest because, because uh, we're all concerned that the people administering justice might be biased in various ways. And as I, as I thought about this, here's yet another news item. Sorry for all this news. This, this is an article about um, the British monarchy, the British, the Brit, British royal family, and uh, their servants. And um, we, we read in this article that the current... Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, has 1,200 people looking after her, her servants. And if, according to this article, uh, the current Prince of Wales, he has so many servants that he expects toothpaste to be on his toothbrush when he's ready to pick it up. In other words, he's got a servant who puts the tooth br- toothpaste on his toothbrush. And, and in this article, it talks about people, it talks about former kings, James I, who He would put on these lavish celebrations for his subjects where, where there would be these massive feasts. But first, his soldiers would go and, and uh, requisition the supplies for that feast from the subjects, right? So the king is saying, we're going to have a big feast and you're going to provide the food. So he would just go seize all these goods from his, his subjects and then he would put on a big feast for them. That's why people are concerned about who's administering justice, right? Because there's this excessive and abusive way of of ruling that we've all, in one, one way or another, we've seen this and we're concerned about it. The good news is that the Bible is about a monarch who doesn't have to requisition goods from his subjects and who has a perfect understanding of justice. Before we we go into Romans 2 verses 12 through 16, I want to quickly summarize for you what we've seen in Romans to this point. So in verses 1 through 15, Paul, he explains his gospel and he, he articulates his prayerful desire to preach that gospel in Rome. And then at near the end of that section in verses 14 through 16, he lays out three reasons that he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. The first one in verse 14 is that he feels an obligation to preach this gospel. The second one is in verse 16, where he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And, and then the third reason that Paul is eager, to, eager, unashamed, and obligated to preach the gospel is because of what's revealed in the gospel one aspect of that is in verse 17, where he says that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And then the other aspect of that is in verse 18, where he speaks of the wrath of God being revealed. And, and Paul stays on the wrath of God from 118, the, the revelation of the wrath of God, from 118 really through 320, and then look at 321 where he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So it's like what Paul is saying is, okay, there's three reasons I'm eager to preach the gospel. Number one, it's the power of God for salvation. Number two, it reveals God's righteousness, but I'm not going to get to that yet. Number three, it reveals God's wrath. And then he exposits God's wrath from 118 through 320, and then he turns to God's righteousness in 321. And, and so we're in this section where Paul is talking about the revelation of the wrath of God. And um, I, I think, I didn't say this last week, but I think it's correct that starting in chapter 2, when he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, at that point he turns to consider um, hypocritical, complacent Jews. So it's like in 118 through 3, through. Uh, 32, the the, the last section of chapter 1, he's talking about these flagrant sins that the Jews would agree with him. Yeah, that's wicked. That's awful. It's horrible that people have lived that way. And then having gotten them nodding along with them, it's like he closes this rhetorical trap on them and he turns to them and he says, you don't have any excuse either. And so he explains in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 how, how the judgment of God is according to truth. And, and he, he explains to them how they're not going to escape this judgment because in 2.6-11, 2.6, God is going to render to each one according to his works. 2.11, God shows no partiality. And, and I think there are several ways that we know that Paul is addressing Jews here. First, let me draw your attention to 2.6, where he says, He will render to each one according to his works. And and this, I think he's, he's talking not, not specifically to the church in Rome. So I want to distinguish here between the audience of the letter, right? So Paul wrote this letter and he sends it uh, to Rome and, and somebody stands up to read it in Rome. And so he's reading the letter to the church in Rome, but he's addressing at this point in the letter unbelieving Jews. And, and he says to them, judgment is going to be according. To works And this, this item is going to combine with other items in the context to, to get at the real point that he's making. So he also, 2.9 and 10, he twice says that there will be 2.9, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor, peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So he's emphasizing this Jew first and also the Greek thing. And then in 2.11, when he says... God shows no partiality. It's like he's, he's slowly building this case to, to the Jews. Don't think that you're going to be exempt from God's justice. And then uh, 2, 6, and 11, judgment is according to work, and without partiality, joins together with two thirteen. If you look there in two thirteen, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law, who will be justified. And, and you start to get the, this idea that he's, he's addressing people who have heard the law, but maybe they're not doing the law. And that impression is also confirmed by 2.12, where he says, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then I'm going to suggest that in 2.14 and 15... He's talking about the new covenant experience of Gentiles who actually live out the law. And, and in all of this, Paul is building up to what he says in Romans eleven thirteen 13, and 14. There, he talks about how he magnifies his ministry in order to provoke his Jewish kinsmen, unbelieving Jewish kinsmen, to jealousy. And it's like he's He's building up toward that statement by engaging in that project. He wants these unbelieving, hypocritical, complacent Jews to start to feel jealous of these gentiles who are actually obeying the law. And this is all building toward 2:16 where he says that God is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So let's look together at Romans chapter 2 verse 12 where Paul says that judgment is going to be according to the light that we have received. So he says in 2.12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And and you can understand how this would resonate with Jews who might have the question, unbelieving Jews who might have the question, what about those Gentiles who did not receive the Mosaic law? And Paul's Paul's statement is: Those who didn't receive the Mosaic Law, they're going to be judged according to the light that they received. If they sin without the law, they will also perish without the law. There's a principle of justice here, and and I think this this really flows out of of what Paul says in one eighteen and following, where he had talked in one nineteen and twenty about how they what what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, and so in spite of what they've They've understood about God from creation. They've nevertheless done things that they knew to be wrong. And we can just think of these news items, right? You don't need the law of Moses to know that sexual assault is a crime. And so if, if you're that kind of sinner and you didn't receive the law, you're going to be judged according to what you knew. You don't need the law of Moses to know that if you're a police officer, you can't just go around shooting people, killing people. And even if you didn't have the law of Moses, you're going to be judged according to the law according to the truth that you were aware of. If you're a politician, you don't need the law of Moses to tell you. You should not use your political power to line your own pocket. You don't need the law of Moses, so you're going to be judged according to the light that you have received. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. But then he also adds, I think for the benefit of these hypocritical, complacent, unbelieving Jews... And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. See, Paul is... He, it's like he's, he's pressing this point. It's not just having possession of the Torah. It's not just having an ethnic identity that makes you right before God. You're going to be judged according to the standard of the Torah. He wants them to think about this. And so really, in a way, what he's doing is just restating 2.6 and 2.11 from another angle. 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. It's not just going to synagogue. It's not just hearing the Bible read. It's not just keeping up the Jewish identity markers. It's not just being an upstanding member of the Jewish community. What are you doing to live out the prescriptions of the law? 2.11, God shows no partiality. 2.12, 2.12, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, as I thought about this, I wanted, to, I wanted you to think with me about the command, Thou shalt not murder. One of the Ten Commandments. And, um, and, and we, we need to bring in here also Jesus' extension of this command to uh, being angry with people in our hearts. He says, you know, you have heard that it was said, thou shalt not kill, but I tell you that the one who is angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. So um, I think what this communicates to us is that we shouldn't nurse grudges against people, we shouldn't cultivate hatreds against people, and we shouldn't be mean to people. And those who are mean to others, those who hate others, those who nurse grudges against others, to say nothing of those who murder, they'll be judged, right? Whether you had the law of Moses or not, you should know that's wrong to act that way. The, the Westminster Longer, Larger Catechism has an, an, an exposition of what's required in the sixth commandment what's required in the Sixth Commandment. So the Commandment's a prohibition, but there are like these implied duties that are required. And among the, the statements, it says that we're required to preserve the life of ourselves and others, that we should, we should um, oppose the unjust taking away of the life of any, and that we should promote the just defense of other people against violence. And then there are other things that it says that we should should do in order to carry out the spirit of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Now look at look at 213. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Let me let me try to illustrate this for us. It's not the person on whose dashboard the service engine soon light comes on, who has the healthy car. It's the person who has the car serviced, right? It's the same principle at work, right? It's not the person who hears the tornado warning that is going to be safe from the storm. It's the person who takes shelter in response to the tornado warning. Same principle at work in what Paul says here. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So let's think about what the Jews appear to have been doing. The Jews, the unbelieving, hypocritical, complacent Jews that Paul is trying to convict of sin here. Let's think about what they were doing. They thought that something about their privileged status, the fact that God had chosen their forefather Abraham and identified them as his people, set his love on them, and their possession of the Torah... They thought that their privileged status and possession of the Bible would exempt them from judgment, would put them in right standing before God. And Paul is saying, no, that is not enough. He's saying, if you're not someone who lives out the spirit of the scriptures, if you're not someone who walks in obedience to the scriptures, you're going to face judgment I wonder, I don't know, this is an honest question, I wonder if some of us are not thinking in ways that are analogous to the way that Paul's contemporaries were thinking. Do we think that there's something about our privileged status or about something that we possess that makes us exempt from judgment and right before God? Maybe you think, I'm an American, how can I be wrong? I don't know, maybe somebody thinks that way. Maybe you think I hold all the right opinions on the controversial issues of the day, and that makes me right before God. Maybe you think, well, I'm a sophisticated, urbane, sensitive person, and I like art and music, and that makes me right before God and exempt from judgment. Look at what Paul says about those who will be right, declared right in verse 13. The doers of the law will be justified. The doers of the law will be justified. This word justified, it means you'll be declared to be righteous. The doers of the law will be justified. Paul is not contradicting here justification by faith. Okay, so let's be very clear about how Paul thinks sinners get justified. According to Paul, sinners get justified because they place their hope and their faith in Jesus who has paid the penalty for sin. But Paul also believes that people who do that receive from God this new power, this new ability that that is given by the Holy Spirit as a result of which they actually do what the law commands. It's like what John writes. What Paul says here is in perfect step with what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. When he says in verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One. He's talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say later in the chapter, John says in verse 27, the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. He's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in him. And John is everywhere saying that people who have this anointing, they don't continue in sin. So let, let's, let, me, let me put this in language that I think I hope everybody will, will lock onto and embrace and then hold on to, okay? The ground of our justification, the reason, the ultimate reason that we are justified, the ground of it is the fact that we believe in what Christ accomplished on the cross and we believe that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10.9, if you believe in your heart, I'm sorry, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the ground of your justification. But the evidence, the proof that you believe that is the way that you live. We're not, we're not, none of us is going to be perfect. None of us is ever going to attain to perfect obedience, but there will be visible evidence. There will be There will be measurable improvement in your life. So the ground of justification is faith, faith alone. The evidence that you are justified is your works. Paul says to Titus, tell our people to be devoted to good deeds. So verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law. You people hearing me read from the scriptures and try to explain them, this is not what justifies you. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I think Paul is trying to get the attention of these unbelieving, hypocritical, complacent Jews, and he's trying to get them to recognize, if I put the law as the standard against my life, I'm in deep trouble. And that's true of every human being who has ever lived. Verse 14, I think here Paul is talking about the new covenant law on the heart. Paul writes, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Um, if If you've studied Romans or if you've read about Romans or you heard other people preach about Romans, you might have heard someone refer to this as a law written on the heart that is given to all human beings as as sort of this natural law I think that's a true idea I think that that people the world over understand it's wrong to steal from other people it's wrong to kill other people uh, we ought to honor our father and mother I think there's a basic um, truth that God has a moral truth that God is embedded in our human nature I don't think that's what this verse is talking about So, so if you're looking at the ESV like I am, um, I want to draw your attention to the comma after the word law, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and um, I want to call that comma into question, and I want to I I suggest that maybe that comma shouldn't be here. Um, it, it's, it's supplied by the translator. It's not part of the Greek text. So I, I think the line should read, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature... And I think the pause should be there. And and I think what Paul is saying is the Torah is not the natural inheritance of the Gentiles. They didn't didn't grow up with the Torah as their birthright the way that the Jews did. When Gentiles, and notice he doesn't say when the Gentiles. So he's not talking about all Gentiles here. He's talking about some Gentiles. And and they they didn't have the Torah by nature, But they do what the law requires. So who are the Gentiles who do what the law requires? I think he's talking about Gentile Christians here. I think Paul is talking about Gentiles who have trusted in Christ. And as a result, it's like what John says in 1 John, the commandment is not burdensome. Right? They they love to do what the law requires. If we think about thou shalt not murder, when they're angry with people, they repent. And they love to promote life, defend life, and advocate for... They love to to make life for other people better because they get the spirit of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. So these Gentiles, they didn't grow up with the Torah, but they do what the law requires. And then look at what Paul goes on to say. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. I think what he's saying, in essence, is they live it out. They... They don't have the Torah, but they're living out the spirit of the Torah. And then look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And here I think Paul is alluding to the passages that we've read in the service. Our our call to worship this morning was Ezekiel 36, where I think Ezekiel is reflecting on Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is the passage that John read earlier, where God promises to write the law on their hearts in the new covenant. And then Ezekiel, reflecting on that, talks about how the Lord's going to remove the heart of flesh and, or heart of stone and, and replace it with a heart of flesh, this new heart. So Paul, I, I submit to you, is talking about people who have received the new birth, they've got a new heart, and the law of God is written on the heart, and the work of the law, the work of the law that makes people want to worship God. No other gods before me, no images, they want to worship God. That's a result of the new birth. They they want to honor their father and mother. They want to to show proper respect for the authorities in their lives. They want to preserve purity and promote life and protect the possessions of other people. They want to live out. They show, verse 15, that the work of the law, its purpose and its, its effect is written on their hearts. And then Paul says, while their conscience also bears witness. So I think that people who have experienced this, their conscience bears witness to them, and Paul talks about how. He talks about how the conscience bears witness in verse 15. He says, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Um, I think that what Paul is saying here is, these people have an awakened conscience and sometimes their conscience convicts them of sin. Other times, their conscience excuses them, in other words, vindicates them. Uh, it, it, it says to them, yes, look, the work of the law is on your heart. So I want to I illustrate this from my own life from this week. So this week, I wanna, what I'm trying to illustrate here is the work of the law written on their hearts. I'm gonna start with a positive example and then go to a negative example. Positive example, this week, um, uh, my family, we were preparing for my sister and her family to come in town, so we were working really hard to uh, get the house all cleaned up, and um, we had swept the kitchen floor, and we had this inordinate amount of laundry in the laundry room because we were washing all the sheets for the beds that the Armani family was going to sleep in, and, and I go into the laundry room at one point, and um, at the present time, there's, a, there's a, a, a line of cereal boxes that sits just inside the laundry room, and there's a lot of other stuff that gets crowded onto that counter. And one of, those lo- one of those boxes of cereal had fallen off the counter and was now upside down on top of the laundry. Floor had been swept, laundry was being done, and, and so some calculations start going through my mind. Was that box closed properly? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I know that box. That's a that's a weak box. That box is not going to keep the cereal in. So I'm hoping that whoever did, whoever last used that cereal box, took the trouble to crinkle up the inside of the the, the bag, you know. And I and I start looking, and I can see cereal coming out. They didn't do that. And and um, praise God, um, I didn't get mad. I was like, this is no big deal. It was, it was the work of the law was at work at, thou shalt not uh, kill was at work positively <laughs> in my heart as I felt no anger and I felt no frustration. And, and I just said, okay, well, here we go. And I, I, I didn't even, I'm not even gonna speculate on who last used that cereal box, you know, and didn't, didn't close it properly and then didn't set it on the shelf properly. I didn't even say anything to, about this to my family. This is the first that they're hearing about the cereal box. So I think that's the, when, and, and, and as it was happening, you know, I've been reflecting on this passage all week. I'm thinking to myself, hey, this is great. The work of the law on my heart and my conscience is now excusing me because praise God, um, I didn't get angry about this situation. Positive example. I, let, me, let, me just, let me just note here. Let me encourage you. If if you see this in your own life, praise God for it, right? If you're a believer in Jesus and you recognize times when things that would formerly trip you up or things that would tempt you or th- ways that you formerly failed, you should say, praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit's at work in my life, the scriptures are having their way on my heart, hallelujah. And also when you see this at work in in the people, in the lives of the people around you, you should commend it. You should Praise God and encourage them. I see evidence of grace in your life. In the past, you would have reacted really poorly to that situation. And hallelujah, it, God's changing you. So we should encourage each other and we should encourage our own selves. Negative example. Last night, uh, we're laying around, and uh, I'm going to leave this situation nameless, um, um, sometimes people in our family, I, I'm sure this never happens in your family, sometimes people in our family try to annoy one another. And so a couple of us are are really engaged in the LSU Florida football game. Sorry, Susan, Denny's not here. So, um, you know, LSU lost. Um, um, so we're really engaged in the end of this game. And um, one, one member of our family that we suspected might be trying to annoy us suddenly grabbed the remote control. And we did not want him to turn off the the game or to change the channel. And so I'm, I'm laying on the ground watching the game and I say, give me the remote. And then the remote smacks me right between the eyes. (laughs) And the work of the law written on my heart (laughs) did not prevail. I got really angry and, um, and it was really bad. And I had to chase that member of my family down and apologize to him. And then I came, I had to come back into the uh, den and apologized to the whole family. And um, uh, my conscience was bearing me witness. And my conflicting thoughts were accusing me. Rightly so. Um, so. So, you know, if this happens to you, if you feel conviction for sin, if you blow it, and the Holy Spirit convicts you and forces you to apologize, this may sound crazy, praise God. Praise God. This too, even though you failed and blew it, This is a a grace and mercy for you to be able to apologize. Paul goes from talking about these things. Immediately, verse 16, he says, On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I I think there's a both and at work here. I think that the, the conviction of sin, the conscience bearing witness and accusing and excusing in verse 15 is an ongoing reality that you have the duration of your life that culminates at the day of judgment, which Paul addresses in verse 16. So so there's this ongoing conviction that the Spirit brings into our lives, the work of the law written on our hearts, and on that day, verse 16, I think there he's talking about the final judgment. When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. This week we have been listening in the car to this song by Johnny Cash called When the Man Comes Around. And just one line of this, he says, there's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There will be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And on that day, unbelievers will be judged and perished, whether they lived with the law or without the law. So if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you need to hear clearly from us that judgment day is coming. Judgment day is coming, and we want you to hear clearly from us that the only hope that any of us has on judgment day is the fact that Christ came and he lived a righteous life. And he died the death that we all deserve to die. And then he rose from the dead. His death pays the penalty for, for our sin. His, his resurrection ensures our justification. It puts the seal on our justification. And, and it shows that he's defeated death. He's the only hope. And we want, if you're an unbeliever here today, we want you to put your hope in Christ like we've put our hope in Christ. If you're a believer... What we want to do is we want to factor this reality into our lives and call, pray that God would make it more of the work of the law written on our hearts. I've been listening to this biography of Lyndon B. Johnson and uh, his conscience bore witness to him. He, um, at, at one point there was an election that he should have won overwhelmingly and he, and he didn't win it overwhelmingly. And, and along, leading up to this, in the lead up to this, he had obviously become rich because he was a politician. He had, I won't go into all the ways that he had ripped people off, but he had ripped people off bad. And I mean, it was really wicked. And, um, and he asked somebody, why don't these people love me? The people who, who cast their votes in the election. And he had a friend who gave him an honest answer. He said, because you got rich in office. And everybody knows why you got rich. Johnson got up and marched out of the room. He knew. He knew. His conscience bore him witness. And there will be a day of judgment, and all those crimes will be answered for. Blaise Pascal said, We run heedlessly into the abyss after putting something in front of us to stop us seeing it. It's the way we live, isn't it? We, we want to avoid what we know is coming. We don't want to look at the abyss that we're running heedlessly and going to pledge, plunge headlong into it. Believer, unbeliever alike, we need to know we're, we are inexorably moving toward our own demise. Everybody is going to die, and after that we will face judgment. Look at verse 16 again. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets. The things that maybe nobody else really knows about. They'll come to light. God will judge our secrets. Our conscience bears us witness. And there will be a day that Jesus describes in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the difference between the sheep and the goats is how you respond to Jesus Himself. That's the difference. And the proof that you're a sheep who trusts in Christ. Paul states that proof in Romans 2 when he says, it's not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So we want to experience this new birth, this resurrection power that enables us to do the law. And then we want to do it. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, We're urging you to put your faith and trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that that your spirit would now do his work. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause those of us who need to repent to do so. I pray that you would bring to mind things that we may need to go home and apologize for. I pray that you would bring to mind ways that we may need to cut off access to sin or repair a relationship or in some other way make amends for what we've done. And Lord, I pray that for those here who may be counting the cost, They may be weighing out their lives and what it might cost them to follow Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would cause them to see Jesus as as one whose worth is beyond measure, as the greatest treasure that can be found in this life, the pearl of great price. And Lord, I pray that they would be like the person in the parable who goes and sells everything that they have to buy that field where they found that pearl. I pray, Lord, that you would compel us all to see the worth of Christ and to be ready to risk everything that we have for him. Make us doers of the law, we pray, by the power of the Spirit, by writing of the law on our hearts, by causing us to be born again and receive from us, Lord, we pray, the glory do your great name, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.